friends. Today I want to share an overview of one of my favorite themes in the Bible, restoration and the presence of God. You know, I used to view restoration and the presence of God as two distinct themes, but about six years ago, they both started buzzing around in the periphery of my mind. Now, God had already given me a heart for restoration, nearly from the outset of my relationship with him, particularly relational restoration. It was something I was already intentionally walking in. But at the same time, I was deeply heartbroken over some of the relational brokenness I was seeing in the church. And around the same time, God also began convicting me about seeking him to encounter and know him. And that had begun to be a daily prayer throughout 2014 for me. God, I want to seek, encounter, and know you today. So I knew God was trying to tell me something about these themes, but it wasn't quite coming into focus for me, and I was pressing in. Then one day, it all came together. One afternoon in January of 2015, I was flipping through a volume of essays by Charles Henry McIntosh that belonged to my dad. For those of you who don't know, Charles Henry McIntosh was a 19th century preacher and writer. If you want to know more about him, I've put a link to his Wikipedia page in the description. Anyway, one of the sections in this book caught my eye. It was titled, Restoration. And under that section, there was an essay called Arise, Go Up to Bethel. In it, Macintosh says, God, in his dealings with us, always keeps us up to the original terms. He talks about how when we get off track from what God has called us to, God is good and faithful to call us back. As an example, Macintosh shares the story of God making a covenant with Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28 and how it's 20 years and a whole lot of life before Jacob returns to Bethel and God reconfirms that covenant and gives Jacob a new name. At that time, I began to examine not only God's original terms for my own life, the good works that God had planned for me and revealed to me as an individual, but also God's original terms for humanity as shown in the Bible. What is it that God wants to restore us or bring us back to? Now, in the first two chapters of Genesis, God declares that everything he has created is good. And we know that everything God says is good is good. So does God want to restore us to the goodness of creation? In other words, as Macintosh might put it, is the original design, the original terms we're being brought up to? Certainly, in the church, we've isolated and glorified and built entire movements around certain principles found in the first two chapters of Genesis. But here's the thing. What God wants to restore us to transcends all of that. God wants to restore us to himself. Directly after Adam and Eve disobey God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God had a presence in the garden with which Adam and Eve were familiar. And God begins to ask them questions. 
Now, he already knows the answer, so I don't think he's on some sort of fact-finding mission here. No, God is trying to connect with Adam and Eve, but sin has already entered their hearts. Their hearts are condemning them, and they can no longer connect with him. Here's the thing. The first and most catastrophic result of sin is a broken relationship with God. And yet, even there, with sin present, we hear God calling sinners back to himself. And we see this call repeated throughout the Bible. The very first covenant God makes is after the flood, when he tells Noah and his sons he will never destroy the earth with a flood again. You know, a covenant is a promise, but it's also so much more than that. The Hebrew word for covenant denotes an alliance of friendship. And it's fascinating to me that the sign God gives for this covenant is a rainbow, which is this arch, this extension, this orientation from heaven to earth. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless you. And the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you all families of the earth will be blessed. That is a great covenant a great extension of alliance from God to Abraham, but it gets even better. Later in Genesis 15 verse 1, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm your shield. I am your very great reward. You know, we might be tempted to look at the fame, prosperity, and longevity that God promises Abraham and think those things are Abraham's reward. But here's the thing. God says he is Abraham's very great reward. When he called Abraham away from the familiar, it was ultimately to himself. God makes a similar covenant with Isaac, Abraham's son. In Genesis 26, verse 24, he says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Again, God's presence is ultimate in this promise. Then we have Isaac's son Jacob, who we've talked about a little bit already. The first time God speaks to Jacob is in a dream in Genesis 28. And in that dream, we're told there was a ladder set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. Once again, we get this picture of God extending himself toward man. God confirms with Jacob the covenant that he'd also given to Abraham and Isaac with his presence as the ultimate blessing. Jacob wakes up from the dream and names the place Bethel, which means house of God. Years later, God speaks to him at Bethel again and changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Of course, God led his people in the wilderness with a dark cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to let them know he was with them. We see that renewed when they set up God's tabernacle, his dwelling place, which was really a tent at the time, a very temporary structure, 
And again, hundreds of years later, when Solomon builds God's temple, a more permanent structure. In both instances, God's glory as that dark cloud and pillar of fire comes down and settles. Can you even imagine? Here's the thing. In Christ, we also have the blessing of God's presence, and it is every bit as tangible for us as it was for God's people in the Old Testament. Think of what the angel of the Lord tells Joseph when he's thinking of sending Mary away in Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. He says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. Here's the thing. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God to us. What better expression of his presence could he give than himself? Hebrews 1, the first part of verse 3, says of Jesus, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. The Gospel of John says in chapter 1, verse 14, The Word, another name for Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. There's that concept of Bethel and tabernacle again. And we saw his glory. If you think that's good, it's about to get even better, y'all. In John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Then further down in verse 8 he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Christ did not only come to dwell with us, but to dwell in us. In Ephesians 3 verse 17, Paul talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. In Colossians 1 verse 27, he describes it this way, Christ in you, the hope of glory, God's glory being the tangible expression of his presence. He speaks of Christ in us, his church, as the unfolding of a mystery, something that has been hidden but is now being expressed for this time and space in history. You know, sometimes I imagine being one of God's people in the Old Testament and watching that dark cloud and pillar of fire descend, that particular expression of God's presence. And I imagine the weight of awe and wonder they must have felt in those moments. Here's the thing. The church is an expression of God's presence. In fact, it's a more complete expression of God's presence. And as good and honestly convicting as that is, we have not even begun to encounter the most complete expression of God's presence. I have a friend who always says, the best is yet to come. 
One of my favorite books in the Bible is Revelation. And the first line in Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that Greek word for revelation means unveiling. So it's literally the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's this big reveal. And in Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul talks about the summing up of all things in Christ. We are moving progressing into the greatest expression of God's glory. John records this vision in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any mourning, or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. In Christ, as Charles Henry Mackintosh would say, God will keep us up to the original terms, his uninhibited presence. Here's the thing. God wants to be encountered and known. He always has. He doesn't make it hard. He never has. As Paul says in Acts 17, verse 26 through the first part of 28, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. In a similar vein, Jeremiah says in chapter 29 of his prophecy, verse 13 and the first part of 14, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Until next time, have a wonderful week, friends.